Hello, and welcome to Core Sampler, the podcast where we drill into the Sitecore community to bring you insights into the work talented people are doing every day on the Sitecore Experience platform. Whether you're a developer, a marketer, or both, we're glad you're here. And now your host, Derek Dysart. Welcome to Core Sampler. In this episode, we are talking with Mike Edwards. Folks probably know Mike from the uh, Glass Mapper project uh, that so many of our guests have talked about previously. So wanted to have Mike on the show to kind of get the word from the uh, straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no problem. And, you know, I know we've been trying to coordinate uh, coordinate our schedules uh, to to get this together. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on. Why don't you uh, Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you came to be in the um, on the on the Sitecore platform? I guess how did you get involved there? Um, well, I suppose my IT development history started when I first started working for a university in Bath, and I worked with their um, IT development team for about two or three years and then I happened to just want to change jobs and I got a job working with a company called Edusev who are also based in Bath and they were the first UK site call partner and it's basically from then that I've learned everything I knew about site call. Um, so yeah so it was about 10 years ago probably now that I started working with site call. So it's uh-huh. been some time uh-huh. I think it's about 5253 was my first uh, introduction uh, to the platform. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, you know it's obviously changed quite a bit since then. Um, kind of as I mentioned in the introduction, you, you're kind of probably best known for for Glass Mapper, um, which is kind of a, a common I don't know object relational mapper for for Sitecore and uh, I, I don't know if a lot of the folks in the Sitecore community know uh, for Umbraco as well. Correct. Um, we've actually stopped supporting the Umbraco version. Uh, as of now, okay. because yeah. none of the main contributors work enough in the Umbraco space. So we are now really just focusing on the Sitecore platform. Great, great. And what, kind of what was the genesis of that, that the project? Because you're on, correct me if I'm wrong, version 4 now, correct? Yes. So originally this project started because when I was working at EduSurf, we'd developed several in-house kind of abstractions for Sitecore. And they'd always been a sort of halfway house, never sort of the complete implementation. They were always enough to get us to be able to complete a project, but I never felt they were fully featured. So on another project while I was working at EduServe, I had a go at trying to write something that was more like an N-Hibernate solution, you know, sort of looking at how N-Hibernate interacted with SQL databases, and I wanted to create something with a bit more feel like that. So I had a go internally um, writing one of these, and it seemed to go well. It was very useful. And I then went to EduServe, and I said, well, can I make this an open source project? And luckily for me, they were very kind to say, yes, you can take the IP from this project and take it external and develop it and give it to the community. And so actually, I counted that as version two. So version one was very much what I'd done internally with EduServe. And then version two was a complete rewrite, learning from what I'd done first off with internally at EduServe. And we launched that as the first open source solution. Um, so that was nice. five, maybe five, six years ago, maybe now. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to say, I think um, I got exposed to it probably pretty early on in its, in, in its life. At the time, we were, you know, the, the, the team I was with, 
we're very much into Valier's uh, custom item generator, which was less of kind of a mapper and more of a, you know, kind of a code generator. Um, and I know a lot of people that kind of migrated from, from that, you know, that package to uh, on, on to uh, class mapper. Yes. And that, that's always nice is when you, you get people to migrate across because it feels like you, you've proven that this product is um, has value. And to be honest, when I first built it, I didn't know if it was going to be this successful um, or this popular. It was kind of more of a, a challenge. I suppose. And that's probably why most people start an open source project. Is they do, they're not sure if it's going to be something that's successful, but there's a challenge there. You want to build something different from what you normally do potentially in your day job. Right. And open right. source gives you a good opportunity to do that. So for, for kind of a developer that may be new to the platform, I, I know, um, you know, several of my guests have kind of, you know, we kind of talk around, um, yeah, you should use an object mapper like, like glass or, or, uh, or any of the ones out there, I guess, you know, for someone new to the platform, I guess, what, what is the, the, the value proposition for using, uh, you know, using glass mapper? For me, the main values are the fact that you, you don't have to spend your time writing that boilerplate code for, for type conversion, which in itself can be very tedious and repetitive. Um, with the uh, move towards the MVC framework, um, I, for me, the modeling system, it works better with how MVC works, especially when it comes to things like view renderings, because now you can actually pass a strongly typed model to your view and then say within the view decide if you're going to render the data for runtime or if you're going to render it for the page editor if you do that with a normal site item sometimes the concerns can get a bit confused i'd have to go into more technical detail to try and explain how that gets confused i suppose but uh, and that's probably not gonna be practical on this podcast but yeah for me it creates a, a cleaner separation between what you're modeling what you're rendering and where the data source is. And so you're not shifting this um, data source item all over the place, which you would do with the, with the standard Sitecore API. It also allows you to be very expressive about what your domain looks like, because often we create Sitecore items that have fields that come from many different uh, business domains or rendering mm-hmm. domains. Mm-hmm. So you might have a component that has a, you know, a, a short title, but that short title is only in the menu or you might have a, an, a long title for the main page. So we can create models that represent our menus and our main page titles. And so if we then give those models to other developers, they instantly understand what the, these properties and what these fields should be used for. And it's um, less fuzzy, I guess, in, in where these fields should be used. Yeah, and I think I, I you know, I, I've seen a case with a lot of kind of, you know, folks new to Sitecore or even looking at, um, some of the early, the, the early training that came out of Sitecore and there, there was a strong propensity to use, you know, you, you access an item and then you get the fields off that item using, you know, the name of the field. Even looking at some of the guidance lately of, of using the field ID, you're still kind of stuck with, you know, magic strings, if you will, of field names. And then I guess, you know, having that strongly typed item of if you have a date field, it's an actually a date time type, or if you have, um, you know, like a, a, a checkbox field, it's, it's actually a Boolean having that strongly typed, um, having that strongly typed class of, of, of your Sitecore item makes it, uh, it, it at least makes your view code. If you, if you're working in MVC a lot, a lot cleaner, I guess you're not, um, you know, you're, you're, you're working almost truly with an actual model 
that that represents the data that needs to get rendered. And I think there, there there's a definite advantage there. You're also saving time because you're not having to think which site core inbuilt function do I need to use to convert this string value to that target type value. You, know, you just go, right, I want a Boolean. I'm going to declare it as Boolean. It's not like, oh, I need to push my field into a checkbox field and then do the delta value on the end of that checkbox field. And I need to do that 10 times because I've got 10 checkbox fields. And then it becomes more complicated. Or if you see with, you know, with a lot of um, what a lot of developers do is they then might go, all right, rather than because I don't want to use a checkbox field, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to compare the string value stored by cycle with the string value of one, because I know that if Cycle is storing a checkbox field, then it will store a one. Um, and then that code doesn't look very good, but it's very, um, anybody else coming to this code will probably go, well, what? why didn't we just convert this to a bool? It's, uh, right, right. It, it just makes the whole experience cleaner. Yeah, or or it's not even you know completely obvious that it's a boolean because you're 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 still doing that that string comparison. Yes. So you know you you know someone that may not be familiar with the way Sitecore is storing that field internally may you know think maybe there's another value besides one or zero that could be in there. So yeah, I could I could see that. It's, it also has um, massive advantages as well as um, using Glass. You know, obviously with TDD or uh, or any kind of unit testing you want to do on your solution. Up until the most recent version, where they've now introduced some abstractions, trying to uh, unit test Sitecore, uh, especially the Sitecore item, was very, very difficult. Um, I wrote a blog post a few years ago about how you could actually set up uh, a console application to run in a kind of fake Sitecore environment. So you could right, fake, right. fake items, but actually you still needed a DB backend to connect to because it was still actually pulling items from a Sitecore database. Yeah, and that was always kind of a the 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 challenge there being you know if you want to do TDD or test driven development, um, your your tests aren't necessarily running in the same context that that Sitecore is, or that you know if you have some code dependent on Sitecore, the the test actually needs to spin all that stuff up, whereas your code normally gets pulled into you know an app domain running inside um, IIS. So yeah, that was that's kind of been a challenge, and I know. With some of this, you know, some of the stuff moving forward, it seems that's going to be less of a challenge. Maybe you could talk about the approach that you took to allow uh, making it easier to write tests. So we, the, the approach we took to make it easier to write tests was firstly to make sure that we have an interface service for interacting with the cycle data layer. At runtime, you can instantiate the concrete version, but all your classes, all your business logic will reference the the interface version. And then the second most important part to that for me was to make sure that the uh, classes, the models you're creating are just plain C-sharp objects. So then when it came to mocking those objects, it was no, a no-brainer. You didn't have to jump through any hoops or do mocks of, of um, say, field wrappers or anything like that, which can themselves be very time-consuming. So by having this interfaced service and then having these POCO models, the time taken to actually write a unit test for your business knowledge becomes a lot shorter. Um, having said that, there are, obviously, there's always still some things you can't test. So if you're testing your business logic with Glass, you are purely testing the business logic. Uh, the one thing that's still always a challenge is testing that your item structure in Sitecore is what you expect it to be. 
And, and so what I mean by that is you might have, say, a news folder and your business logic is expecting to have date folders beneath it, say a folder for each year and then a month beneath that and then days beneath that, that sort of typical uh, date ordered folder structure. Um, now, in your business logic, we can test that, yes, if I get the news folder and I, I can navigate down to all these sub-date folders and that works fine, but we can't easily check what happens if somebody moves the date folder inside Sitecore. Um, but unfortunately, there isn't really any any good way, even if you try to use some of the other mocking frameworks like uh, FakeDB, they will still allow you to test the content structure if it's in a good good setup. But if somebody moves something accidentally, then unfortunately, I suppose no, no amount of unit testing will uh, uh, highlight that problem to you. Yeah, it, it is difficult. I mean, I was having a discussion with someone else um you know, not not so much related to glass, but you know, if you're serializing a lot of your tree into source code, well, you know, whether you're using something like um, Hedgehog's team development for Sitecore, or you're using a, a serialization framework like Unicorn, you know, where is the where is the breakdown? Um, you know, there's there's uh, you know there's kind of your development items, things like templates and your rendering definitions that are kind of the domain of the developer, and then there's content, which is kind of the domain of the uh, you know d- domain of the the marketer, the content editor. Um, but what if you know how how do you handle if we're going to completely change the structure of the site and you know about becomes about us and you know you're you're moving all that stuff around and at that point you you almost have to approach it like you're rearchitecting the solution. Um, because in, in effect, you are you're you're rearchitecting the site. You're affecting the the information architecture of the site. So it, it's kind of the same way. It's it, you can only test so far. I think the only solution is to use some sort of runtime validation. And what's interesting, if you look at something like uh, TDS, they've implemented uh, the ability to introduce validations um, into a TDS project, so you can validate item structures within TDS itself. And so that I suppose it's an interesting idea. Could you roll that into um, the actual cycle solution? Mm-hmm. So maybe using you know, PowerShell, um, you could say, right, well, here, here are a set of validation rules for item structures. So if I see a news article uh, folder, I expect it to have these folders, you know, the year, month, day folders beneath it. Now validate this for me. And then you could just run maybe have some sort of automated task that just runs over your content structure to validate that all the items conform to the correct hierarchy. How intensive that would be on processing, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's always that's always the challenge. <laughs> yeah. So kind of looking at, you know, I think um, you know, most folks that may have, have experience with glass, it's it's pretty easy, you know, especially if you're using a tool. I you know, I I've used a tool like like um like TDS. Uh, they um, they do ship a, a a set of code generation templates such that as you import your templates, you're automatically building building out your glass model, uh, your, your your kind of model objects. And I found that you know there, there are folks that may you know kind of not like how verbose those um those templates are. Um, you know maybe necessarily I don't want all of my um, I don't need all of my uh, fields map to a, a particular type. Um, but even looking at, you know, if you're, if you're kind of hand building your model, so to speak, and, and doing that, I, I think that's kind of the, I would say the step one of working with glass. I, I don't know if you disagree with that. Um, 
but I guess knowing a little bit, kind of what are, what are some that, you know, say, say you have somebody that's, that's used glass before, what, where, where do you think are some other areas that people may not necessarily, uh, realize or, or, or kind of have front of mind of, you know, where else you could use, uh, where else you could use glass mapper on a Psychor project? Um, I think actually just going back to the, the template versus the hand rolled, um, method of, um, generating your models. Um, this is one area where I still think there is a lot of, uh, debate about which is the best route. Um, sure. myself and Nat, who contributes to the project, um, we're both hand coders. We both very much like, uh, the writing models that just contain the fields that our view needs. Because for me, when I'm creating a model, it's almost acting as the contract between the data source and the business logical view that I'm rendering this data on. And, and you, you saying that I can hear, a, you know, I can, I can virtually hear architects sitting out there on their commute, just cheering with you. Yeah. Cause I, I that it, you're right. It is kind of a, a very, uh, a, a very contentious, uh, topic, yeah. I guess. Cause my, my, the one concern I have with like, if you're generating your, um, model from the templates, um, and because of the nature of glass, it is a mapping framework. It's not a wrapping framework. What you often find is you, you get people who are mapping a lot of fields that they don't really ever need to use. Now, these fields may be, for example, you, know, you, you might have a rendering that's just rendering the title, but they'll still get a, a model that has maybe 20 properties on it. So they do 20 property maps for one property. So in a performance way, it's not optimal. And then also, if you give this model to someone else to look at, and you, you're telling them to go and do something, they will may start to use properties that aren't appropriate because they've they're just the model just exposes everything to them, and and there's no controls. So by having handcrafted models uh, per view, the developer has to then start to think about what data do I want to pull, rather than what data is just immediately available. Um, also, I find with view models. What you can also do is you can add um, additional properties. So you know, Glass isn't limited just to what fields an item has and getting its URL and name. We can also add on different properties, um, you know, like, like with children and parents, but we can get children and parents of certain types. So by putting those on, you can start to express relationships that exist in the view model um, based on the types you're pulling back. So you're not having to pull back just a generic page. You can pull back, say, again, I'm going to go back to the news article example. It's running through. Um, but I can say, right, I've got my news article, and I expect it to have these certain folder types as children. And they're not just a generic item. They can be very specific. So this gives you um, the ability to be um, much more expressive with your view models. You're not just tied to the sort of generic nature that templates sometimes have. Um, the same thing can be done with you know, adding query properties to them. Um, so I think by using view models, you can really describe your domain a lot better than if you're just using template models. Sure, sure. I want to go back to something you just said there. I think that's a, it's probably an important distinction to make that, that GlassMapper is, is using mapped objects versus wrapped objects. I guess explain a little bit of what you mean by that. So when we map the object, we actually have to pull that data off the item and map it to a property. 
at the point where we construct the object. Whereas a wrapping framework, what it will do is it generally takes the item that you're, you've requested from Sitecore and then uses essentially a sort of decorator pattern. So the, the item is then put in this class. And then when you want data from a wrapped item, the wrapping property will actually go and access the item at the point of request. Now, there are obviously uh, advantages and disadvantages to both. So the nice thing about the mapping solution is that once you've mapped the data off the item, you essentially disconnect your data source from your model. So at this point, you can get a lot more flexibility out of your model uh, because you're no longer restricted by any of the technical impediments of the underlying item. Certain things I'm thinking of are like, um, if I want to edit the title on my model class, I can do that because it's just a property and I'm not writing to the underlying item. So I don't have to put any item into editing state or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I can make a whole bunch of changes to the properties on my model, validate them and then save them again without having to put the model into an editing state. However, wrapping solutions have an advantage is in that because they're only pulling the data from the underlying item at the point of when you want that data, that means their construction time is a lot quicker because you know it's just it's just create a class, drop this item in, return it. What we found um, though when comparing uh, sort of models over time is that actually these end up being about the same. If you end up doing the same work on either side, both both the map solution and the wrap solution end up executing in about the same in the same time because. They both end up doing similar amounts of work, really. But it's where you do that work, up front or as you go through the application. Now, where that doesn't stand true is when you put on a load of unnecessary properties onto your models that you're not going to use. Well, then in a map solution, we still have to map that data because you've requested it on your model. Whereas in a wrapping solution, you can get away with doing that because if you don't call that property, no work is done. Yeah, so it's almost like looking at you're you're with a wrap solution, you're you're actually lazy loading the the, the values out of Sitecore, whereas you know with with the map solution like GlassMapper, you when you instantiate that object of you know my news page, if you've mapped every single field on that item, uh, you actually have to go through and read every one of those and then copy it into the object. Yes, yeah, um, you know, and that's that'd be the same with using many ORMs because. If you even if you use like a, a SQL ORM and you say I want all the fields from this table, well, it's going to go and read all those fields on that table, even if you only use um, one of those fields, because it's not keeping a live connection to the SQL database, because that would be even more inefficient. Um, and of course, you know, we we do certain things to try and optimize how we we load that data. So if you've got relationships to other items. We don't instantly go and grab those other items. We defer loading of those other items until later on until you request them because that's a very expensive operation. So we, yeah, most people you know, probably read that class has a lot of lazy loading in it and, and know how to turn lazy loading on and off. So, uh -huh. yeah, so we do our best to optimize it. And, and generally, you know, we've got a performance page and, and you, we'll try to be quite transparent about how um, the framework does perform. And we, you know, we, we generally come out on par with uh, the Sitecore API when it comes to reading data and rendering and rendering data. Um, in particular, we make a lot of time up um, at the end, at the rendering stage, because we actually skip the render field pipeline for a lot of um, field types. 
because it's just not necessary when you're rendering it to screen, especially when you're using MVC and stuff like that. It doesn't make sense to have this model where you've collected all the data onto the model, done some work in the controller, sent that model through to your CSHTML file to only then say, right, now I've got all this data. Actually, I'm going to go back to the render field pipeline and do the work again. That would doesn't really make sense. So at that point, we can actually save a huge amount of time. So you by by skipping, you know, and by the the render field pipeline, that's you know, for people that might not be uh, aware of it, it it's a, a a pipeline within Sitecore that runs every time you actually render a field out. It allows you to, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some built-in things that happen. I know is like on rich text fields, it'll expand out link, uh, you know, links. Uh, using the link manager, it'll expand out media items, you know, to to their actual URL. It also creates all the the chroming that you need for the page editor as well. So correct, correct. If you want to make a field editable, it it does all that work for you. Yeah, it, it yeah it it outputs the you know it takes what would normally be you know an image tag and actually wraps it with all the uh, like as you said the Chrome to allow you know the the marketer to select a you know use an image selection box and so forth so that's that's kind of what the the, the function of that pipeline and in, in so you're saying by it by avoiding that uh a second time through uh you you end up gaining a lot of uh gaining a lot of performance yes actually for for us we actually need to use the render field pipeline in, in two scenarios one is when there's a rich text field that needs to be mapped uh because we have to obviously escape all the links and images in that rich text field and the other time is when you're in the page editor. Um, for all the other top fields like date, time, image, link, we have a custom rendering process for doing those that match what Sitecore do. So we compare what we're doing to Sitecore. So we we are the, we output the same. Uh, but what that also means is it's also easier for you to customize how those pipe, those processes work as well. Sure, sure. Um, but I think there's a longer discussion about uh, the render field pipeline. Um, because I'm I'm not I'm not a huge fan of sending lots of different data types through a, di- a single pipeline. <laughs> like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And I think with when you look at how it works with uh, the Sitecore default API, so you know you call Sitecore.field and then you pass in the field name and the item you want to render. Yep. This to me very much breaks the MVC model because at that point in my view. I've gone straight from my view into the database, grabbed a data source item, and then rendered it. And, th- and at that point, it's like, well, what's the point of your controller then? Right, right. And that should be composing your models, and then the view should just be purely about rendering the data from your models. It shouldn't be trying to pull data actually from the backend data source. Yeah, yeah. So, what is uh, kind of what does the future hold for for GlassMapper? Uh, you know, as I mentioned, you I think you guys are on. Uh, I don't know the exact version as we're recording. This was 4.2. Yeah, we're on yeah 4.2. So for the most part, I think we're we're pretty much there in terms of all the immediate features we want to to put in. Um, I'm very reluctant to keep adding features just for the sake of adding features. I don't want to end up with one of these sort of bloated frameworks where we try to push everything in, even the kitchen sink just because we felt like we had to keep developing it. Um, so what we've been doing over the last few iterations is trying to make it a little bit more extensible, listen to where people have had pain points um, when they've tried to customize it, and just to, and also just try and fix those bugs as well, any bugs that come in. Um, sure. 
So I think we're pretty stable at the moment. Um, going forward, we might look to put in um, a little bit more reporting so people can see how their pipeline structured, uh, what sort of what models have already been mapped inside this inside glass. So you can say, all right, that you know, sometimes you get problems because you're not sure what might have been mapped, especially if you're inferring types and things like that. You might have some some competition. So. We want to try and create a system that allows you to see how your models are configured inside Glass at runtime, so that if you have mapping issues in Glass, then you can just maybe go to this web page and see what Glass thinks it should be doing, and then maybe that'll make it easier for you to identify mapping errors and that sort of thing. Sure, sure. I think it, you know exposing some of that decision process that the framework's doing. Uh, I had a d developer once you know first uh, the first time he started using glass mapper he's just like this is black magic i have no idea how <laughs> how this thing's actually you know producing the data you know, it was for him it was doing the uh it was doing what he was expected but he's you know was kind of like i have no idea how it's actually you know i i, I tagged this uh you know i put this attribute on something and all of a sudden it just magically it, it magically worked so it's probably a testament to the, the, the robustness of the framework because, you know, I've heard more than one person kind of describe how glass works and, and, and how it actually ends up kind of giving you what you need as, as black magic because it's, you know, you've done very, very well of, of kind of abstracting a lot of the, the, the details of it uh, into the framework. Um, you, you, and I guess when we first started the conversation, you had mentioned um, it's an open source project uh yeah i guess what sort of uh what sort of contributions are you guys looking for at this point um well if anyone has a good idea if, we if any if any <laughs> you know, if anyone has a good idea we will always accept good ideas um and because we we always see these things from our perspective and our our day-to-day -day use and um when when i go out there i'm always surprised by the many ways and different ways that people are using it and it's that many eyes uh, create better solutions. So if anyone has any kind of suggestion they want to make or any feature they want to add, then that's great. Uh, one thing we have realized recently that makes it a bit difficult to contribute to is that we, the in, the unit tests that we initially set up for Glass, we're using um, this technique of running a site call from a, an application. And that meant having a database backend that was synced with um, all the items that the test required. And that was a real pain for people to set up. Um, you needed a license file as well, um, and that had to be in the right location. So over, um, over the last month, I've actually uh, refactored most of our unit tests now to use FakeDB. And so what we're hoping is that by moving to FakeDB, we can encourage more people to contribute because it's just it's just going to be so much easier to actually run our test to make sure that what you've done hasn't broken anything and also for you to add additional unit testing where you think it's appropriate. Uh, so awesome. Yeah, so hopefully we will get more more community involvement. Great, great. And with that, I guess where where can folks find you online if uh, you know if they have uh, have some feedback for Glass or, or just want to want to talk to you? Uh, uh, where, where where do you kind of where where do you hang out online? So. Um, obviously, you can go to the Glass website is where um, you can find all the information on Glass itself. If you want to get hold of me, my Twitter handle is at MikeEdwards83. And that's also the same on the Sitecore Slack channel. 
which again is another great community resource. I highly recommend anyone who isn't on Cycle Slack to get on Cycle Slack uh, because there's Definitely. so much so much information now is being exchanged on Cycle Slack. It's like, and there's a there's a dedicated Slack channel within that team. Um, and I know I've seen you hang out in there, and I know there's there's other folks in there that um, you know, n- nobody's shy about kind of answering answering questions for Glass. Uh, if if you're on no that. no, um, and people jump people jump in really quickly. You know, they they you know, it's hard these days to actually get any stack exchange points. <laughs> you know, <laughs> such is the speed at which people are able to answer these questions. Yeah, that was a testament. I remember early on, I mean, any glass questions, it always ends up being you as the answer. And now uh, that's definitely not the, the, the case anymore. There's You've got quite a few defaultees um, monitoring Stack Overflow and answering those questions. So Yeah, and I mean, that, and that's the great thing about having a community, isn't it? That people people will step up and and happily contribute their, their time and energy to answering and helping everyone else learn, um, which yeah, is just definitely. great. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show, Mike, and uh, thanks to you guys at home uh, for uh, for tuning in to this episode. Um, you can find show notes for everything we kind of chatted about at coresampler.fm, and uh, we'll see you again next time. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Core Sampler. To see show notes from this and past episodes, please visit coresampler.fm. There, you can also subscribe to this podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend and then go to iTunes to rate and comment on our show. Even if you're using a different app to listen to us, those ratings and reviews really do help others find us. Are you a professional working with Sitecore and interested in joining the show? Or would you like to leave some feedback directly? We want to hear from you. Drop us a line at info at coresampler.fm. That is all for this episode of Core Sampler. We'll see you next time.